0: hello and welcome to blight stories in the key of decay and repair i am sean williamson so i started the third season like a few months ago and then i got a job working on the art department for a television show and then i got another job working on a film in upstate new york and pretty much everything else got pushed to the side since i last put out an episode the world has changed a lot it's always changing and there are now live shows and people in restaurants, and though, in my opinion, we are now actively living in a post-apocalyptic world, there are reasons to be optimistic about the future. When I started making the show, it was about survival. It was about the desperation brought on by this proposition that we could be losing our good lives. Now, right or wrong, I don't really feel that way. Which is maybe why I've had a hard time putting this episode together, even though I've had these stories for months now. Also, I'm just really tired. So, I don't know what the future of the show is exactly, but that's okay, I think. It's okay to step away from your artistic projects when you don't have the bandwidth for them. I know I've enjoyed it. I know that I'm looking forward to many Blight projects going forward. I know that Cactus Club has resumed live programming. I know there is much to do and see and listen to, so let's just keep that going in whatever way we can. I wrote our first story last winter or spring when I was working on this show in Milwaukee. There is a dead raccoon on the nothing street that goes around Holler Park, laying sideways like a pot-bellied father, for days and weeks now, staring at the curb. Trucks whistle in the yards, smoke that smells like chicken noodle pipes from the top of the Campbell's Soup Factory. I drive a truck, but I walk to work, down 6th Street, across Layton, over Drainage ditch bridges through a land where the single-story houses have no more than three windows on the front. It smells like a campfire. A god is real. I move sets for the pictures. Actually, I move sets for the one picture I can think of that shoots in Milwaukee. Sometimes I resent Milwaukee, but it's been good to me. If I can't be buried with Houdini in Queens, then bury me here. I don't see the difference. It smells like french fries on Layton. It smells like popcorn. It smells like gasoline and French bread from Cousin Subs. You can bury me here if you want. My wife told me she thinks she has skin cancer. My grandmother is having heart surgery tomorrow. Giancarlo Trapano overdose on heroin, I think. I hate it a lot. My son Theodore got a haircut. A car inches into the McDonald's entrance and I hurry out of the way. A mother looks worried as she exits the other side. I walk in the street because I believe in the escalation of tragedy. Believe in the impermanence of life. A young man comes down the steps of the Seaway Terrace, 24 units front and back, to help a woman pull something from her car. Holler Park behind me now. Pine cones litter the sidewalk. These are the war homes of the South Side. A car speeds 50 by me, and I imagine strangling them. Then a man in a motorized, three-wheeled DUI bicycle mobile. On Allerton and First, there is a red house so beautiful I can't believe it. Almost every other house is tan brick. A tree reaches down in the front lawn of the daycare. No one can get a hold of my grandma in her hospital bed. Maybe she is ready, but does not want to tell us. I think of my coworker Maddie here in Milwaukee for this job all alone, living in an apartment downtown with none of her things or her friends or her family. Then I think about going to that nothing street where the sleeping dead raccoon has turned to the cold side of the pillow. I see myself a shadow in the path lamps of Holler Park, digging a grave to drop the raccoon into. So Maddie doesn't have to see that, and I don't have to see that, and this collective piling accumulation of death won't be the forefront thought of our everyday lives. And I won't know, thinking of this and arriving at the foot of the alley behind my house, that that night a sanitation truck will come up and someone will get out and shovel that maggot-filled carcass into a bag and that once again that nothing street will be a quiet stretch of peace. Or that the very next morning Somehow, a different raccoon will be leaving Holler Park and will be hit by a car and have its guts threshed out and exposed in a way that the other one, the one that seemed to have been napping, had not, and how this is actually not a metaphor for life. Our next story is by Tom McGowan. Tom is a storyteller living in Georgia and a return contributor to the show. Here's Tom.
1: The first one I remember was a young child about my age who lived up the street. And there were six blocks between lights on Broadway along a sweeping curve. And that child ran out after his dog and a city bus ran him over and he died, and he disappeared. The next one was Johnny Sweet. I lived in an apartment building of some 30 families. They lived on the other side. Two sons, healthy, kind of all American types. Family name Sweet, that was Sweet. Not another name you run into often. And he was in his teens, solidly built, and he broke his arm, and of course I'm sure people put their names on that cast as we did. And it wasn't setting right. I think they rebroke it and cast it again. And then they discovered he had cancer. And people didn't get cancer back then, unless you're very old. And a lot of people died of heart attacks before that ever happened. He was young and he got cancer. Must have been of the bone, I guess. And in three months, he died and disappeared. And the family, I think, moved out to Long Island and they left too. And then my grandmother passed. Maybe I was eight or nine. I didn't really understand death at that time. My, my mother got the phone call. Her mom had been in the hospital with pneumonia finally took her out. And my mom did not show her emotions, but I know it had an impact to her on that day when her mother disappeared. And later on in life, my neighbor, Marshall Milner, 94 years old, riding bicycles and getting up on 20-foot ladders. When I knocked on the door that morning, I would check on him each week. He wasn't there and found him at Grady Hospital, the big hospital in town. He got there to get glasses and they kept him. And after three weeks, they transferred him to a nursing home nearby and I visited him a few times a week and every Saturday morning. And after three weeks there, as I sat next to him, shoulder to shoulder, next to him on the bed. He wasn't close to people. That was the closest I ever was to Marshall. He wasn't a hugger. And the best he could do was open one eye when he spoke to me slowly. And on Monday morning, I got the call that he had died, that he too disappeared. And my next door neighbor, Michael, who was in his 50s, but had major health issues and diabetes and all. His sister, who kind of ran the show there in that family, she had gone to New Orleans to get on a cruise ship. First time in her life, I'm sure. And I didn't get a call from Ethel. I saw the fire trucks outside and ran over. Couldn't find my phone number. We fixed that by putting a card up with a thumbtack in the pantry for emergencies. And Michael had collapsed that morning and I helped sort out the firemen and the EMTs. And it wasn't my decision to make, but I helped Ethel make it. Either he passed there or they took him to Grady, hoping that they could keep him alive until Debbie got back from New Orleans with a seven hour ride and she arrived an hour after he passed and Michael too disappeared from my life. And then there was Melinda, my wife. She had a sonogram that said that there were some ovarian cyst, and that, you know, they take another look in six months, beware of that six month delay by the way. And they said that, you know, it was a 3% chance of being cancer and it was a minor operation. As I waited in the hospital, it went longer and longer, which was not a good sign. And when they brought her in to recover, they told me it was cancer. As I sat there for over 24 hours before she actually came out of all the drugs I had running through her veins. I was on my little laptop plugged into the wall before we had Wi-Fi researching stage three ovarian cancer, not liking what I saw at all. And when she finally came to and I chatted with her, I told her what was up. I'm a straightforward person about things. And she answered about prog- asked about prognosis, I deferred on that. And I told her the story about how, how when I flew a lot, one of my flights, instead of going to Atlanta, sat down in Raleigh at 5 p.m. because of thunderstorms. And I was supposed to get back out at midnight. I burned through everything I had in trade press and even a New Yorker magazine waiting those seven hours. And at 10 o'clock I sidled up to the gate agent asking what my chances were, what my odds were of getting on the the 11 o'clock flight, getting out an hour early. And he thought about it and he kind of squinted, looked up at the ceiling and he pondered it and looked up again and he said, your odds are either zero or a hundred percent. And I smiled and laughed. It was a gifted reply on so many levels because we're either on the bus or off the bus or we wake up in the morning or we don't. And Melinda doesn't remember that conversation at all because she was still coming out of the ether, so to speak. We had to work hard on it. She steered her ship on cancer and I was there to back her up when needed to be or to straighten out some recalcitrant bureaucrat that blocked the way of making progress or take over when she just couldn't function. And I remember she would she would teach uh, residents at Grady Hospital four times a year. The user perspective I would call it about cancer about ovarian cancer. A doctor from Emory would go with her that she got acquainted with. And I was home working one day and she said, you know, you can go with me. And I had thought about it many times, but I knew there was downside for me. I said yes, and we jumped in the car and went down. And the doctors went through 20 view graphs on the wall about the prognosis and the treatments and all that. And they left it with uh, the final graph of of mortality sitting behind us with the different stages, with a plunging line and asymptotic near zero, for those of you that are into math and graphs. And they asked questions and Melinda chatted. And uh, at one point someone in the back row of these 30 or so young residents, said, did you plan for this? And it was an odd question, but I suspect that it was quite heartfelt that maybe their plan was to get married and have a wife or a husband and 2.5 kids and live into their 80s and have a good life. I said, no, Melinda had planned to live to be 100 and I planned to live to be 91 and we would pass on together. And then I told them about the odds of zero and 100%. And Melinda lived for five years. She beat the rap. They gave her two took three operations and four clinical trials and a lot of time spent with the medical world but she wanted to help others in the future and to help herself too she was clear about both items and in the last week we had to invoke hospice I took care of a lot of planning the pain was getting to be too much and we called at noon on a Friday and by about six o'clock all the paperwork had been signed, and we had the painkillers, narcotics, I guess. I don't remember exactly what it all was. That ease the pain. But in the end, as I've learned since, the narcotics tend to slow things down. And she'd had trouble breathing. At the end of that week, middle of the night, she couldn't breathe. And we had an oxygen generator, and I ran through two cylinders of pure oxygen to no avail. And I called the hospice and their phone lines, <laughs> their phone lines were down and not working. And I wish I'd had to spend a minute to get a cup of coffee to help the gears turn. And I called one of their 24 hours facility, inpatient, got through and they somehow got through to our contact and she was a half hour away through, through Atlanta traffic. And I called up 911 and the Grady folks came out, the MTs. I met them at the door making sure they understood that this was hospice and that she did not want to go into the hospital. She wanted to die at home. And they nodded and their oxygen did no better than what I was doing. And at one point, it was a big guy and, a, and, a, and a, a well-built, stocky woman that had some muscle, the two of them were, were capable people. And I couldn't find her, and I found the female EMT out by the ambulance. She was taking a break, trying to stop her tears. And Melinda passed away, And I called the close neighbors to say goodbye to her with the green quilt that a Mennonite woman, a wonderful neighbor and quilter, had custom made for her. And the undertakers took her away and she disappeared. And they tell me that stories should have a beginning, a middle and an end. And I guess it's a reminder for all of us to stay in touch with people, to give them a hug because our days are numbered and we don't know what that number is.
0: Our next stories are by Justin Spaller. Justin is a writer from Milwaukee. He holds an MFA from UMass Boston, where he was the fiction editor at Breakwater Review. His work has appeared in the Sonora Review and Topography.
2: Mercury Can Kill You The husband unloads the dishwasher because it's late in the evening, and he always unloads the dishwasher late in the evening. The wife watches a made-for-TV movie because it's Tuesday and there's nothing good on. In the home, the kitchen and living room are separated only by a high counter. They're silent for some time. The husband carefully takes a towel to the inside of the glassware to dab up the beads of water left behind. It's an old dishwasher, and the dry cycle never seems to complete the job. The husband, however, is thorough. This thing is worthless, he says. We should get a new one. Oh, it's fine, she says. You always say that, he says. He sets down a smudge-free wine glass on the counter and intently watches it, as if expecting it to move. He shakes his head gently to break his stare and goes back to the dishes. He begins to whistle, and the wife sighs at the sound. Continuing his tune, he reaches into the top rack when he notices something odd. On the open door of the dishwasher, the husband spots a few small shards of glass. The cooking thermometer has broken. Amidst the glass are tiny beads of the mercury that until recently filled its bulb. With gentle hands, he picks up the few pieces of glass and throws them in the trash. The thermometer broke, he says. You should have been more careful. She turns her head to look at him. I didn't break it. It was already broken. The mercury spilled. Well, make sure you clean it up. Mercury can kill you. I know mercury can kill you, he says. The husband takes a spoon from the silverware drawer and uses it to gather the mercury on the door of the dishwasher. The smaller specks slide into one another, forming larger specks until the whole of the mercury becomes one perfect sphere. The husband is holding the sphere on the spoon and brings it within inches of his face and examines it. It's such a small thing. It looks harmless. He tips the spoon at an angle and holds his hand underneath. The bead casually drops into his palm and sits there. No burning, no smoke trail rising from his melting skin. It simply rests, unchanged in his hand, like a bead of water left on a glass due to an old dishwasher's faulty dry cycle. He wraps his finger around the bead and clenches to make a fist. Now he can no longer see the small bit of poison in his hand, but he knows it's there. It's a powerful fist, he thinks. Did you get it? Says the wife. Yeah, I got it. He walks around the high counter and sits on the couch next to the wife. We should really get a new dishwasher, he says. I'm trying to watch. He sits staring at the side of her face, looking past the small cracks that extend from the corner of her eye. She's beautiful, and he wants her. He's never been more certain of anything. The movie has gone to commercial, but the wife doesn't look away. She's lost in the glow of the television. The husband raises his fist slowly to her cheek. Keeping his fingers tight, he takes his thumb to her cheekbone and softly caresses. He makes a circle. Now he feels the mercury in his hand, so simple, so destructive. The metallic bead is inches from his wife's slightly open lips. He draws his thumb down the side of her neck and pulls the collar of her shirt down exposing her collarbone and top of her right breast. She grabs his wrist and shifts away from him. Now he has her attention. Not now, she says. I'm trying to watch. Televisions. The flat screen TV came in a big flat box. Dad yelled for Jason to come and help, but Jason said he was caught up. I said I could help, but Dad said, no, you're too little. Then Dad yelled again for Jason loud, and he finally came. First, they had to move the old TV to Mom and Dad's room, which meant Jason got their TV. Jason's TV went to Emily, so Emily's TV went to me. Dad said maybe they should just put Emily's TV in the basement, but then I cried, and Mom said maybe I was old enough. Jason put Emily's TV on my dresser and said, Playboy Channel is number 89. Comes in fuzzy. Knock yourself out. I was too excited to turn it on and instead just imagined myself watching my new TV from my bed. I heard Dad yelling, This is fucking ridiculous. Then Jason yelled, Will you just let me do it? Dad said, None of the chords match and none of this makes any fucking sense. Jason said, Just let me fucking do it. Then there was more yelling and I heard dad punch a hole in the wall. I heard him yell, we're taking it back. A little later, Jason came into my room and grabbed my TV. I said, hey, I was watching that. He said, it wasn't even on, dipshit. So I sat on my bed watching nothing. Then I made myself get angry. I punched the wall hard, but it didn't break. My hand was stinging. My knuckles got really red and my fingers turned into little sausages. So I started to cry.
0: Thank you as always for listening to Blight, Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair I am Sean Williamson Show music by Sean Stefani Mixing by Shane Levo Check out the merchandise on our website Check us out on Twitter and Instagram Go to a show at the Cactus Club Everybody be safe A quarrel in the street Dream of a love affair Kids in the bathtub A good enough sandwich Ford Taurus, the romance car shorten the joke held hands on woodward fantasy is action hungry like a casket lonely games is the songwriting friendship of nick tavark and myself you can stream and download our debut single charlene at lonelygames.bandcamp.com and you can also listen to that song right now